Amen, amen. If you guys would, you can have a seat for a moment. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here at Holmes Avenue. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, as we begin, I do want to make a note. Uh, this is typically where we would take of our tithes and offerings. Uh, uh, as you are well aware, life is a little different right now, and so if you would like to give, you can of course give as you exit today. Our deacons will be available to receive that. Uh, if you would like, you're also able to give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give. So if you would like to give online or in person, we have options for you there. But we want to make sure we're keeping everyone safe through this process. So today we're going to begin our book study of First Peter. Uh, I'm quite excited about this. I think this is going to be an incredible series for us, and particularly right now, uh, I think it's a, a relevant series for us. We've titled this series Sojourners, and, and in this, as we look at this book, a key theme that Peter lays out for us is the fact that we as Christians are sojourners and strangers in this world, that we are passing through, that we are, our, our citizenship is in the heavenly kingdoms. Now, this doesn't mean that we're unconcerned with the world, but it does mean that we're set apart from it by our trust in Christ. Now, frankly, it's no secret that 2020 has been a, a full year. Am I right? Uh, it's, a, it's as if an entire decade's worth of history and events has happened in this full year. If you remember back in January, many of us had these bright and exciting New Year's resolutions, and now we're just thinking, I hope that this year ends well. I would settle for it to end, in fact. Let's just move on. It's been a, a challenging year. It's not a secret to us. It's only getting more challenging right now as we're in the middle of a contentious election cycle and all the other things that we have happening in this world that it is no secret right now that it, it's a difficult time. And you might be wondering, just as, as I have throughout this year, about what God has to say about this time we're in. Right? That if we could interact with God and we could talk to Him and hear what He's telling us and to hear what He thinks about this time period, I think that you, you would want to hear those answers. And really, I think some of the words that we've just sung are helpful for us to remember in this time. You know, we just finished singing Cornerstone, and what Peter would show us in this book are these words My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. You see, Peter, as he's writing this book to persecuted Christians in the early church, he writes this book on the foundation, on the principle that Christ is King. That no matter what happens in this year, no matter what has happened or occurred to us, he still sits on the throne. And the crazy thing is that none of this has caught him by surprise. Not a single thing that has occurred this year has shaken him or scared him or made him wonder what's going to happen next. That every single moment of this has been intentionally allowed. You see, it's these words that Peter would urge us to anchor ourselves in this time of turmoil. Just as a metal anchor anchors a ship in its position, firmly in its position, Christ being our anchor will prevent us from being swept away by the troubles of the world. You see, it's this very advice that Peter gives to the early church who's experiencing difficulties here in 1 Peter. As he's writing to this persecuted church, he could say a lot of things. Have a great sermon series. Make sure you evangelize well. Make sure that you're faithful to this or that. But what he says is anchor yourself in Christ first. And the rest of this will work out. 
And so as we look at 1 Peter today, I think we're going to see some key truths that are helpful for us. As we always do here at Holmes Avenue, uh, if you would, I would invite you to stand with us as we read God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 today. The words will be on the screen for you. As we look at the text, verse 1 begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has called us to be born again in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is kept imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look into. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your grace today. This grace that is the gift of salvation you've provided. In the midst of these challenging times, Father, we're grateful that we have an anchor in the midst of the storm. That though the, the storm rages around us, though there's turmoil and dissatisfaction and suffering all around, we're anchored to you, Father. You've held us tight. You've held us closely through this. And never once have we walked alone in this time. So, Father, today, would you continue to bless us? Would you reveal the truth of your word to us? Would you allow us to see what it is you're doing in this text and doing in us? Will you allow us to see what it is that you're creating and shaping in this world so that you may receive glory and honor in the future world? Father, we are grateful for the grace that you've shown us, and we pray that you bless us today. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as we begin today, we, we we're going to begin with verse 1, and I've got four points for you. They'll be up on the screen. I hope you're taking notes. But our first point is that salvation brings clarity. Salvation brings clarity. Look with me at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. We'll stop right there, and, and there's something I want to focus here for us. This idea of elect exiles. This, these two words encapsulate so much of what, what Peter is telling us here. 
We see so much about this major theme of this book that it's showing our identity as believers in this world. You see, we are set apart. We are different as followers of Christ. This idea of election, that we are chosen by God. We're the called out ones. That this is our spiritual condition as people who follow Jesus. We've been selected by God to be his people. We're also exiles, though. And this points to our physical position in this world. No, we're not, as some people are, uh, they've, been, uh, they've been kicked out of their homes. They've lost the place that they're from. Rather, we are just sojourners or pilgrims passing through this land into the next. You see, our home is not this world. As followers of Christ, we look to the future home that we'll receive, the new heavens and the new earth. That in this world, though we are passing through, we look to the future here. Now, I know that this idea that we are both elect, we've been chosen, and we're exiles, we've been kind of rejected and put aside, seem like it's a contradiction. Here's the truth. We are exiles in this world because we've been elected by God. Because we've been chosen by God, the world treats us differently. That because we've been chosen by God, we are going to experience some measure of persecution and discomfort in this world. That whether you've been a Christian for five days or five years, you know that there is going to come a time in your life where the world will say this is what we're to do and the word of Christ will say this is what we're to do. And there will come a point where you're going to stand firm on the word of Christ and be condemned and ridiculed by the world or you'll give in and fall away from the word of Christ. You see, because we are in exile, we experience marginalization. That means that the world thinks very little of Christians, do they not? We live in a society, particularly in America, that wants to push religion and faith aside. We live in a world that requires separation. You hear these things like separation of church and state. You hear politicians say things like, my faith has no bearing on my politics. That this is what the world wants, that you can have your faith, but it stays right here and it doesn't bother anyone else. We experience hostile forces. I don't think it's a secret that there are people in this world that are hostile to Christians. They're hostile to the Christ that we represent. That I don't know that I need to go much further to paint a picture for you, but what I've described is America in 2020 if not the world in 2020. What we see is that there is opposition to the things of Christ. And if there is opposition to Christ, then there is opposition to his people, that is you and I. And so indeed, if we are God's chosen ones who are destined for eternal and heavenly glory, we will encounter conflict and turmoil in this world because of whom we represent. Now, if I can just give you an aside here, just this is free, you get this. Uh, in the midst of 2020, it's no secret that we are in the middle of a very contentious election cycle, right? I mean, we're all well aware of this. We're watching the news. We're seeing the candidates. We understand the reality that this is perhaps one of the most difficult election periods we've seen. In my young life, I know it is. And, and some of you have a bit more life experience, and you may be able to say, yes, indeed, it is. And one of the things I've seen from Christians and non-Christians alike, but 
perhaps most importantly from Christians, is that they are putting their hope and their rest in a specific candidate. Now, I wouldn't dare stand up here and endorse a candidate because that is not who we are. You vote as Christ would lead you. But here's something I need you to hear. If you think America is going to be lost because of a certain candidate getting in office, you have put your hope in man, not God. If you think America is going to be saved because a certain candidate gets in office, your hope is in man, not God. Because I need you to hear something. This is, again, free. God is not surprised by who's going to be elected president in 2020. You and I very well may be, but God is not going to be surprised. And if you think a single solitary man is powerful enough to put God off his throne, then you are a fool. You are a fool if you think that God is going to be shaken by some career politician. You are a fool if you think God is going to be shaken by some businessman. Let me assure you, the election is important. Politics are relevant. We must vote wisely. But we also vote with a confidence that no matter what happens after election day, Christ is still king, he sits on the throne, and he still has a plan for you and I. Now, I hope that encourages you, and perhaps I hope that convicts you as we're thinking about this election season. I certainly urge you to be wise and to focus in on what God is telling you, but I also tell you to rest and put your hope on Christ. Because as elect exiles, that is who we are. Our hope is anchored in Christ. I hope in nothing less but Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And so as we think about our position as elect exiles, Peter tells us there's some things we have to understand. You see, this is why we say the salvation brings clarity, because it shows us the things that matter. Now, in verse 2, Peter begins to lay out a focus for us. He, he begins to address the Trinity here in this sense. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. You see, he gives us this Trinitarian focus. He is saying that God has worked in a mighty way in your salvation. That he has truly moved mountains so that you would be a part of this elect exile family. You see, he begins with this idea of addressing the foreknowledge of God. Very clearly, Peter tells us that God chose you before you were ever born or before you ever acted. God of his free will said, you will be my child. He called you and I to himself. Why? Why did God move in such a way to call people to himself? He did it because his eternal love, his identity required him to act to redeem and save a lost and perishing people. We see in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. Am I right? God is indeed love. And so he must act to save people, to save you and I, because he is loving that God in his kindness and mercy came to redeem us. Now we also see Peter address this cleansing of the Spirit. He describes this occurring here. That he says the sanctification of the Spirit. Now this word sanctification refers to not only the act of us being set apart from God, consecrated and made holy, that's God choosing us and making us clean. This is also the continual process of God every day making us more and more holy. Every day we experience this process of sanctification. When we walk with the Lord, we become more like the Lord. 
It's been said that you are the product of the three people you spend the most time with. I would hope and pray that those three people might be the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's a Baptist joke, I know. Now, these two elements, this foreknowledge of God, His love and kindness, and this cleansing of the Spirit that comes upon us as God calls out to us, combine together into this purpose of salvation, which is this, that we would have obedience to Jesus Christ and we would be sprinkled by His blood. We would be redeemed by His blood. You see, I can summarize what Peter is saying here very simply. God calls... The Spirit cleanses, and Jesus saves. God calls, the Spirit cleanses, and Jesus saves. This whole idea is, uh, of what they're referencing is really looking back to Exodus 24, where Moses initiates the children of Israel into covenant with God. By these things taking place, we're being brought into covenant, that is, relationship with God. By God moving in such a way to display His love and kindness... And by making a way so that we could call out to him and say, forgive me for my sins. We've been brought into the family. Now, I've told you that salvation brings clarity. And, and really, these two verses are enough for us to understand what's happening. You see, these two verses are like putting glasses on when you've squinted your entire life. These two verses allow us to see clearly. And what we're to see right now is that we are chosen by God. We are sanctified by the Spirit. We are saved by Jesus. And we are sent out as chosen sojourners into this world. We've been deployed by God as elect exiles into this world. I know we finished a vision series. Y'all thought we were done with those words. We're not. We've been deployed out as chosen exiles into this world. Doesn't this put our time on earth into clarity? Doesn't this put a proper perspective in front of us? That if indeed God has chosen us and sent us out for His purposes, that means there's something we've got to accomplish here. That means we have a greater purpose. That means we are anchored in something beyond this life. Now, Peter doesn't end here. He continues and he explains some further details about what salvation brings to both us and the world. You see, in the next section, we see that salvation brings hope. Salvation brings hope. Look with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Peter begins this section with praising God for what he has done. Why is he celebrating God's grace? Why is he praising him? Because he's caused us to be born again. You see, Peter is celebrating the grace and mercy of God to bring salvation to us. It is this salvation that provides hope to us. You see, we're going to see this later on in, in the book here, but we're going to see some of this about the difficulties and the trials that these readers are experiencing. This isn't set in the time of the early Roman persecution. This is just before the Emperor Nero starts punishing Christians. And Peter's writing this to these churches, knowing this persecution's beginning, and what he is saying is the salvation you've received 
brings you hope in this difficult time. You see, in the midst of these difficulties that you're going to face, the readers, that is you and I, those who read this in Peter's day, we know that we have a deep well of hope that's found in God. We have a well of hope found in Him that will never run dry. This hope is to sustain us and strengthen us when all else is failing around us. You see, it's this new, this new birth that brings hope. This is the fruit of God's mercy. God provides mercy so that we would experience this new birth and enter into the family so that we could cling tightly to God. We've been born again and made new by God's miraculous grace. And it's this new birth that provides a living hope to us. It's this new birth that lets us cling tightly to the cross. Now, Peter continues and gives us a little bit more explanation about this, this living hope here. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. He continues to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, he begins to more clearly define what this living hope looks like. Our inheritance, this future unity with God in heaven, a bodily resurrection that God has promised us is kept and preserved for us in heaven. You see, it's not subject to the toils and struggles of this earth. It's not made of perishable things. It's not made of things that will fail and fall apart. You see, what Peter is telling us here right now is that everything we know in this life dies or fails. 100% accuracy, everything in life dies or fails. There's no negotiating that subject. Yet each of these terms that is used, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, assures us that the hope that is reserved for us in heaven never will fail, nor will it die, nor will it fade. You see, the hope we have is guaranteed for eternity. The hope we have is rock solid. You see, not only do we have this hope that is anchoring us, but we have God's power working in and through us, as he says in verse 5, that is the guarantee that he has promised. The guarantee that what he has promised will be ours. He tells us that by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. You see, this is telling us that we are guarded or shielded by God so that we will receive our final inheritance and experience the joy of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to experience persecution or suffering. It doesn't mean that we're not going to experience physical, emotional, or mental pain. What it does mean is despite all of this, we will see God. You see... The truth of the gospel, the core promise of the gospel, if you will, is that after all is said and done, if you trust Christ, we get God. That is the core promise of the gospel. That is why we can endure persecution and struggles. That's why we say as we're talking about things like spiritual warfare, that Satan can scare you, he can harm you, he can even kill you. But what he cannot do is separate you from God because you are guarded and secured in Christ for eternity. 
That these things have anchored you and have given you a steadfast position before the work of the world. That you are anchored and held firm by God's promise that he has never failed and he will not start now. And so in the midst of this, we have hope because if we rest in this promise of God that we at the end of all of this receive him, we can hope, we can be sustained in the midst of difficult and struggling times. Now, this isn't the end of the story here. Because this hope, this hope we have and that we get to get with God, we get to be with God in eternity, this also brings joy to us. You see, this is our next section of study, that salvation brings joy. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, our, our joy, the, the in this phrase that we see, this is grounded in the hope of God's salvation. It's this hope that lets us have joy in the midst of these trials. You see, we, we see this reference that, that Peter has here, this use of for a little while, referring to our trials, the, the grievances that we've experienced, the difficulties we're going through. Peter is not making light of our suffering here, but rather he's providing context for us. You know, in the moment that we experience difficulty and struggles, suffering and trials, it seems like it lasts forever, doesn't it? All of us have been in difficult moments, some more challenging than others, where we thought this is never going to end, right? We've wondered if this time of pain and heartbreak and sorrow will ever cease. And it felt like an eternity during that time period, didn't it? Yet what Peter is telling us is that yes, your time is hard. Your time of suffering is a challenge, but it pales in comparison to eternity. He says, your suffering seems like it's taking forever, but that's only because you've taken your eyes off of the eternal glory that you're going to receive. Yes, this moment is hard. Yes, this moment is difficult. But these two years, five years, ten years of pain and difficulty are nothing compared to the rest of time being spent with God the Father. You see, he gives us proper perspective. Our present suffering is only for a little while because one day we'll be united with God for all of eternity. And that few years of pain and difficulty will be nothing in comparison to the eternal glory that we see for all time. Now, Peter also tells us this, this phrase of if necessary. So if necessary, we may go through these trials. And let's be very clear that God may very well allow difficulty in our lives. That I don't want to stand up here and pretend that if you follow God, if you live as Christ intended, that things are going to be perfect and easy and good. If that's what your hope is, I would dare say you should not follow Christ. If you're hoping for perfect or easy or good in this life, you need to find something else. 
Because what I do know, as we've just said, is that following Christ brings opposition. There are enemies of Christ in this world, and we see in Ephesians 2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that this world is under sway of sin. And because we, as God's people, are holy, we're surrounded by enemies. There will be suffering that comes into our life. We might suffer for following God, very clearly. It might be extreme where you lose your job and your home and other things. It might be minor where coworkers make snide remarks about your faith. But what we do know is that God may or may not allow these things to happen. We may very well be tested in our faith. Yet, as James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, we just finished up James a couple of months ago. And James had a lot to talk about with testing and trials and difficulties. And it's not just coincidence that 1 Peter follows after the book of James. But it's the reality that as these guys are writing to the early church, they recognize that following Christ will lead to challenges. Of the apostles who followed Jesus, all of them but John died a martyr's death. Every one of them died for their faith. John died an old man alone in exile after writing Revelation. What we have to understand is that following closely with God invites difficulty and struggles in our lives. Yet, this suffering produces purity and steadfastness in us. You see, our faith is being tested. We're being refined like gold would be in a fire. Do you know how you get gold? Gold just doesn't come out in this beautiful gold bar. It comes out in this lumpy, ugly rock. And you know what you do to purify, to get the gold out of that? You get it really, really hot. Some of the impurities burn off. Others can then be separated from it. And what you're left with after that long and difficult process is this pure, valuable item. This thing that you would look at and go, this is worthwhile. In that same way, We experience difficulty and struggles and turmoil to burn off these impurities, to create a faith that is imperishable, that is genuine, that is true. You say, I don't want difficulties, and that's a fair thing to say. But what Peter and James and Jesus would tell us is that you should invite difficulties in your life because it will make you more like Christ. Yes, you will be sifted in this life and shaken and tossed about, but that process makes you more like Jesus. You see, he tells us that the result of this, the end result of this sifting, this purifying, is that we receive a reward of praise and glory and honor if our faith has been attested and approved by fire. Yet, at the end of the day, do you know what the true reward of all of this is? That we stand before God and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
that we receive this unfading crown of glory. This is how we suffer. This is why suffering, this is why difficulty is to be welcomed. In the midst of those difficult moments, we cling to this eternal hope, this joy that we have set before us, that we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Now Peter continues, and he continues to point to some reasons for joy here in verse 8. It reads, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, Peter is giving us a glimpse into the hope that drives us. This hope that we're looking towards is the revelation of Jesus Christ, his appearance at the second coming. You see, our hope is anchored in the fact that Jesus has promised He would come the first time to seek and save the lost. He will come a second time to bring His people home. That this is the promise we look to. And though we have not seen Him, nor do we see Him now, we believe in Him. You see, seeing Him in this next life is going to be one of our rewards. That we get to stand with the saints of all generations and look upon the glory of Christ before the gathered throne. That we worship with everyone from the apostles to Moses to the people gathered in this room. And together we look up and cast our eyes upon Jesus standing at the throne. That this is our reward. Our life is marked by believing in the one we have not seen. This isn't some stale intellectual belief where I just I think I'm, I'm a good person, I believe in God, or I went to church, or I did this, or I did that. No, this is one that we stake and root our very lives on. You see, we trust, trust this truth fully, knowing that we are condemned and hopeless without it. That we anchor our very lives on this. It's this belief, this trust that drives our joy, specifically our joy in having God. You see, we can have joy in the midst of our trials because God is working in us. We have a greater enjoyment of this joy because we have experienced trials. Haven't you found that to be true in your own life? Aren't the good times that much better because you've experienced bad times? Aren't you more grateful for these good and sweet moments because you've been to hard places? That just as it's true in our own experiences, it's true in our faith. That we are presented with an all-consuming, overwhelming joy that is to be found in our salvation. And truly, the joy that we feel now is but a pale shadow of the joy that we'll feel on that final day. When sin and death have been defeated, when God reigns over the new heavens and a new earth, and together with the gathered body, we sing, holy, holy, holy is He. You see, this joy that we have, that we experience, it's anchored by the certainty of our final salvation. We don't know what life is going to throw at us. We don't know what tomorrow holds, and with 2020, that's a bold statement. We frankly don't even know that we're guaranteed tomorrow. Yet we do not live in fear because we know that at the end of our story, 
we stand before God and through no earned righteousness of our own, He will look upon us and say, Well done, my good and faithful servants. You see, we have joy because we know where our hope is found. We have joy because we know that this life is not the end of it. This life is not the end goal, but rather it is to rest and anchor ourselves with Christ. Now Peter's not quite finished here. He has a few more verses for us to see. And in these next verses, we're going to see that salvation brings privilege. Salvation brings privilege to us. Look with me at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see, this gift of salvation didn't just come out of nowhere. Like it's not just it popped into left field one day. No, the, the, Peter shows us that the prophets of old prophesied it's coming. You see, this revelation from the Holy Spirit to these men was to be written and they found over the foundation of the Old Testament Scriptures. That means everything from Genesis through Malachi is intended to point God's people to this coming Messiah. Everything found in the Old Testament is to be pointing to the salvation that is coming through the Messiah. And as we see here, this salvation is described as grace. The point that, that Peter is making is this grace, this salvation from God came to you and I. God's favor and power from before the foundations of the earth were meant for you and I to experience. Now this grace is not the result of some accident or mischance. This grace is the result of the sufferings of Christ. The Greek here, not to get into a kind of a biblical nerdy thing with you, but what we see here is that the Greek actually gives us some connotation of destiny or destination. You see, these sufferings were destined for Jesus before the foundations of the earth. That this was intended to be his role. What we have to understand is that God knew that we would sin and fall short of his glory. God wasn't standing in a garden going, oopsie daisy, what am I going to do now? That before he even said, let there be light, he, the Trinity, he, Jesus, and the Spirit knew that Jesus would come to earth fully man and fully God. That he would walk to this earth as a perfect man. And that he would go to the cross at the appointed time to die for our sins, that sprinkling of blood. That he would pay the debt for you and I so that we may have life eternal in Him, should we choose to follow Him. You see, He hung upon that cross for the appointed time, for the joy that was set before Him, that you and I would be together with Him as elect exiles, that we would be in this journey with Him, and that one day we would be united with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. That this is why Jesus came. We see that statement in verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That that is the root of the gospel. 
That we have sinned and God in his love and mercy sent Jesus to pay for our debt so that through his shedding of blood, we could be found righteous and holy. Now Peter lands the plane, if you will, in verse 12. Verse 12 reads, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You see, Peter tells us here that these Old Testament prophets, they longed to experience and to see the fulfillment of what they prophesied. You have to put yourself in the, the mindset of Isaiah, who's writing Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, the one who would be, by his wounds we will be healed. And as he writes these words, he cries out to God, God, that I could but live to see this suffering servant. You see, their ministry was not directed to themselves or to their own generation, but for those who would read these very words that we've read today. You see, the culmination of the words that Isaiah wrote came to peak 2,000 years later at the birth of Christ because that suffering servant entered into the world. Now this tells us that these Old Testament prophecies not only apply to us today, but they're intended for us, that we're to study these and see of the coming Messiah. They point us to the key truth that we are privileged to live in the time of salvation. We are privileged to live in the time between Jesus' first coming and His return. That we live in a unique time period of history. We even see this as contrasted with the angels who long to glance at and reflect upon these truths. You see, Jesus came to earth to save mankind. You and I, those who would trust in Him. The angels themselves did not receive this gift of salvation. The angels themselves did not receive this grace. And they look upon this and go, what grace has been bestowed upon mankind. You see, we have the privilege of enjoying our salvation in this time, yes, but in the life to come. But you see, it's these truths that salvation brings to us. Yes, salvation brings clarity, brings hope, it brings joy, it brings privilege. But it's not for these reasons that we trust God. You see, as our band comes back up and is going to lead us into a time of worship, you see, we trust in God because He has loved us before the foundations of the earth. We don't trust in God because we get clarity, hope, joy, privilege. We trust in God because He has first loved us. Before I knew anything of this world, He was willing to call me His Son. Before you breathed your first breath, He was willing to call you His child. I think Charles Spurgeon gives us a, a great explanation of, of what we're seeing here. He says this, You may fear that the Lord has passed you by, but it is not so. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. He knows your case as thoroughly as if you were the only creature he ever made or the only saint he ever loved. Approach him and be at peace.
You see, you get to approach him and be at peace. Because what we see through this passage in 1 Peter is that God came to bring salvation to those who are lost and far from him. He came to bring peace in this life and the next with God himself. By sending Jesus to die for our sins and bear the weight of our sins upon that cross. That just as Jesus struggled to draw breath and died upon that cross, his death has brought us life. I'm reminded of the words of Romans chapter 10. As we wrestle with this truth, we see beginning in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, the message that we see found in 1 Peter, these verses today, is that salvation is a grace, is a gift from God. And that this grace, this gift from God is available to anyone who would call upon Him. And God's Word Himself, God promising by His very character, says that if you call upon me for salvation, I will answer. If you call out for redemption and hope in this difficult time, I will answer. That everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. And so today, you have an opportunity to call out to God Himself. You have the opportunity to call out and to receive this free gift of grace. And what you and I must do is to look upon Him and wrestle with this truth and ask this question of ourselves. Do I want this gift of grace? Do I want this clarity, this hope, this joy, this privilege of being a part of the family? Or do I want something else? You see, today, my prayer, my hope and prayer is that your answer is that you would call out to God and that you would trust and rest in confidence that He will indeed answer you. And here in the next few minutes, you'll have opportunity to do so. Our band's going to lead us into a time of worship, of celebrating the living hope we have in Christ. That we'll sing of the goodness of God and the mercy that He's shown us. And as if that's not enough, we'll have opportunity to celebrate His name. Here in the next few moments, I'm going to pray. And there'll be an extended time of silence for you to wrestle with what God is doing in your own life. For you to cry out to God and to put Him to the test of saying, God, you have said that if I call out for salvation, you will answer. That I'll close us in a time of prayer. And I'll be here. If God has moved in your life in such a way that He's brought you to redemption, come talk to us. 
If you're in the middle of turmoil and strife and you need hope and joy, come talk to us. If you don't have clarity about what God is doing in this world and in your life, come talk to us. I'll be right here in the beginning and I'll be in the very back as you exit. So if I may, can we together go to the Lord in a time of reflection and prayer? If you would, would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we come to you today in this appointed moment, it is true that the gospel, that salvation provides clarity to us. You see, this grace of salvation, of Jesus paying the debt of our sins, lets us see things clearly. But even should someone here not be a follower of God, it allows them to clearly see their spiritual condition. It allows people, mankind, to see that they have fallen short of the glory of God, that each and every one of us have sinned. And it is that sin, our own weight, that is held against us. But as Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, but God interjects himself into our situation. But God, you have come and you have sent Jesus to provide salvation to us. But only should we cry out to Him. Only should we cry out and receive this free gift of grace. So Father, today I pray that for every man, woman, and child here, that they cry out to You and receive this gift of grace. For those who have been believers for some time, may this be another moment of sanctification, of being made more like You. For those that are not believers today but have repented and trusted in Christ this morning, may this be the day that alters the trajectory of the rest of their lives. Father, we are grateful for the things that you're doing in our lives. And Father, I dare say that though we may not feel it today, we will one day be grateful for the year 2020. The testing and the struggles and the difficulty you put in place is intended to purify us and make us more like you. So, Father, let us see the value and the significance in these times. Let us see the meaning of what you're doing in this world to shape us to be more like you. And, Father, may you continue to shower us with this grace, this salvation you've given us. Father, we are so thankful for you. We are grateful that you would choose to show grace upon us. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.